right, welcome to Atheist Talk. I'm Madeline Love, and this episode is being recorded Friday, May 1st, 2020, in gorgeous Egan, Minnesota. The conversation today was, is with virologist Dr. Richard Allen White III. He is the virolo- a virologist and CEO of Raw Molecular Systems, LLC, and is going to focus on COVID-19. While we just had a conversation about COVID-19 last month, we here at Atheist Talk felt there has been so much change on this topic in the last six weeks that another conversation would be useful and informative. I want to provide a content warning for this episode. This conversation will feature a frank discussion around this issue. There may be details about those who suffer from this illness that some listeners might find difficult to listen to. We are not trying to be either sensational or hyperbolic. Rather, we want to have an open, honest, and frank discussion on this issue. And unfortunately, there are aspects of this topic that can be very difficult to hear and think about. So, Dr. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, great. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's, you know, we I mentioned we just had a conversation with, I think, uh, Dr. Vincent Racinola of This Week in Virology a month ago. And I felt like, you know, we did a really great show. We, we hit a lot of information and it feels like everything we talked about six weeks ago with him, like it's still valid, but so much has changed and we've learned so much more just in the last six weeks. And Absolutely. so- I'm so happy that you said that you that you come on and chat with us. Um, so I guess before we get in into the COVID discussion, um, what is it about microbiology and virology that that prompted you to get into this field of study? Oh, this is a great question. So uh, I've always been interested in the natural world. Uh, you know, my my father uh, was a paraplegic, and uh, so I was in and out of hospitals most of my life. My uh, my uncle is a surgeon and head surgeon at uh, Stanford Medical Center. Uh, so medicine has been a part of my life for a long time. I grew up rural, so I grew up on a ranch and I was exposed to like all these different critters and animals and stuff like this. And so I've always been interested in the natural world. And uh, for me, I've always, you know, I grew up watching, you know, the Outbreak movie and, you know, stuff like that. And so the minute I saw that movie, I thought, wow, that would be so cool. And uh, I kind of, I, you know, it, the viruses seduced me for the first time. And then, and then finally I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. And then I took my first course in cell and molecular, uh, cell and molecular biology when I was an undergraduate almost two decades ago, dates me a lot. And, uh, and uh, the woman at the end of her lecture, she normally, we don't talk a lot about viruses. Um, and she said, I want to talk to you about the unfilterable agents and uh, obligate intracellular parasites known as viruses. And that, and, that, and that was it for me. I had been stuck, stolen, my everything had been given away to these amazing nanomolecular machines. It's, it's so cool to hear. Um, and I've, you're, I hear many virologists talking about this, how you just, this world opens up the, of the invisible. And yeah. that before it's like, not for everybody, for many people, it's like, you really don't comprehend, like, how many viruses are there, how different they are, how, you know, how varied this entire, I don't know if ecosystem is the right word, life system, like, ecosystem everything the that's right there. Word. It's like a different yeah. universe, almost. So, I mean, this is a, this is a great comment on this. And so, uh, you know, I also, as a kid growing up, I watched Cosmos, and I was fascinated with the Cosmos. And then Lynn Margolis, his first wife, wrote the idea of microcosmos the idea of looking at the small stuff. And uh, there are more viruses in the ocean than there are observable stars in the observable universe. 
right? So we look at, we think there's 10 to the 31 viruses total, 10 to the 30 in the ocean. There's probably much more than 10 to the 31. Uh, there's only 10 to the 21 stars in the observable universe. So you've got upwards of nine to 10 of the order. Yeah, 10 of the, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, a mole of molecules, right? A mole, like a mole of elements, right? Is six times two times 10 to the 23rd, right? So it's even more viruses than that. So we're talking about an abundance that is absolutely tremendous. They're the largest genetic reservoir. They're the greatest uh, creators of the greatest library of genes. Uh, a virus isn't going to keep a gene around if it doesn't function, right? And they, you know, some viruses in the ocean, they steal parts of photosynthetic apparatus or, you know, they steal cobalamin synthesis uh, or phosphorus, start, uh, 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 phosphorus scavenging. And we're just, you know, with the advent of next-gen sequencing, and we're able to actually look at this, you know, Craig Venter went out in the Sargasso Sea, and they said that the Sargasso Sea was dead. There's nothing there. And there's a tremendous diversity. And now we're starting to get in terrestrial ecosystems, like looking at plants, looking at our gut. You know, you have more uh, viruses in your mouth in an, average, in an average person than you have stars in the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> You know, you have more in a, in a, you know, you have more viruses in your gut that are living in, you know, your lower, you know, your, your immune system is 70% of your gut, of your immune system is from your gut. Uh, and there's more, you know, there's more stars, obviously, in the Andromeda galaxy, and you have more viruses in your gut than you have stars in the Andromeda galaxy. So, I mean, it's an abundance that is just absolutely tremendous. And what we look at, what we're dealing with now, we're dealing with a global change in climate. We're dealing with antibiotic resistance, the monster that is asleep. Uh, we are dealing with a, a viral epidemic, one that we haven't seen at this magnitude in the last hundred years. And we're dealing with things that are absolutely terrifying. And I think, and I will hopefully convince you tonight, uh, that phage are our answer. The viruses that infect bacteria have led to tremendous advancements, uh, such as next-gen sequencing, molecular cloning, CRISPR-Cas gene editing, all of this came from phage, bacteria, viruses infect bacteria. And so, uh, and that's why we work at it at RMS, where we think that, you know, phage 1.0 was cloning, sequencing, uh, vectoring, you know, all these different things. We think phage 2.0 may be, you know, devices made from phage, batteries made from phage, cars made from phage, treating antibiotic resistance. Uh, we, we think that, you know, the next generation and tremendous amounts of green jobs will be generated from understanding and using the, you know, phage 2.0. You know, when I was, um, when I was in college, one of the, th one of my public speaking classes, I, I had to convince everybody, and I chose this topic because I'm a nerd, that do the doctor from Doctor Who is real. And <laughs> one of, one of my talking points was how there are more stars in the sky then there are grains of sand on the planet Earth. And to hear now that there's more viruses in the ocean than stars in the sky, like, and then just like that for me, like, it's hard for me to comprehend such a big- Order of magnitude, not just, not just a right. little bit oh, more, right. like it's orders like, of magnitude. Right. And like, you know, like, if you line them end to end, they would reach 60 galaxies away. That is just mind boggling. Like, it, like, oh yeah, that's- And we don't even know like 99, we don't know 90% of the genes. 
Yeah, I remember watching something on, uh, this was PCR from 10 years ago, so I know things have changed, but they were talking about, you know, you'd sequence gut bacteria, just the, just, just the genes in your respiratory tract. And there was this big black space where like, we know these are genes. We have no idea what they are. We have yeah. no idea what they code for. We don't know, like, we know they're part, you know, they're there. No idea. And I just right. And that. the other thing is you have a whole other genome. You're, yeah. you're your own ecosystem. You have an ecosystem in your mouth. You have an ecosystem on your skin. You have an ecosystem in your, 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 uh, your, your, your genital tract. You have an ecosystem everywhere on, on you. And you interact with an ecosystem, right? And so this is the whole idea of the microbiome, right? Is that this is whole other thing that might be easier to, you know, manipulate and easier to, uh, you know, because if it's as simple as giving something to your diet or changing your diet or adding this bug back in, uh, it might be much easier than trying to edit your genome directly, right? I mean, even with the advent of CRISPR-Cas and all these other things, it's hard to change a whole organism. What advice would you give to somebody, and maybe it's what you've just been talking about, but what advice would you give to somebody, say, in middle school, in high school, who's, you know, they're living through this, what will be history right now? I mean, they will be, this is life-changing global history that we're living through. What advice would you give to that student who's thinking, maybe, maybe I want to learn and study more about viruses? Um, you know, I think, you know, in the field we're seeing right now is that we don't have enough infectious disease experts. We don't have enough, you know, companies building, you know, basic stuff. Um, I, I think that, you know, the next, you know, Einstein or Newton is sitting in a classroom somewhere and they're going to invent a technology that's going to change everything. Right. And for me as an entrepreneur and a, and a lecturer, at the university, um, you know, my thing is, is that we have to, we have to, I think, tackle two things. I think we have to tackle this virus, but I think the thing that is more terrifying for me is the misinformation. And so that's why I started this, you know, my friendly neighborhood virologist type of group on YouTube and stuff like this is that the misinformation, because we are so connected, uh, it's created another problem. And so we're fighting this pandemic and then we're also fighting misinformation. And the misinformation has been weaponized by various things to cause problems. And so it's a two-edged sword. So I think we need, I think not only we need people to study viruses as far as biological viruses, but misinformation acts like a virus. So you could be computational or security and, and apply what we know about viruses to something like that. And so viruses, I've always thought and believed that viruses are the greatest teachers of how to deal with um, many parts of our of our world. I mean, there you know, I made the joke because I'm a Star Wars nut uh, geek, I guess, not a nut, but uh, is that you know they're the, they're really the midichlorians, if you would. You know, the the force talks about you know the force that guides everything, right? And so these are viruses. They're the lar- they they go through and they they are the largest changing of biomass. They lice twenty percent of the ocean every day. They're the greatest reservoir of genes, right? And so by understanding viruses, we understand global geochemical cycles from phosphorus, nitrogen, uh, carbon, uh, how our oceans in, and our terrestrial biosphere breathes could be a potentially a viral component of that. So I think, you know, beyond just preventing infectious disease, uh, applying them in technologies, which we've done in the past, and then also just 
um, being able to understand how they function in soil, right, for bigger things like climate change, for example. I was, you brought up um, your friendly, could you repeat that? It's, I, I know I'm on the page. Friendly neighborhood virologist. Yes. yes. Yeah. So I was invited to that uh, by fellow skeptic and podcaster, Nathan Dickey, who, I mean, he's just a good friend. Um, and, and I was drawn to it. One of the things that drew me to it was like, okay, I think whoever created this page is a bit of a nerd um, and like Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that was in your head when you created it. But that's what I got out of the out of the title. You know, it, it was, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, I am a huge fan of comics when I've grown up. I read a lot of comics. So uh, I'm more of a, a I, I think Venom is kind of a cool villain. You know, he's the villain, you know, but, uh, you know, but he acts like a, the, the symbiote acts like a virus. So I was I was drawn to Venom more than oh. Spider-Man myself. Yeah. But, you know, even his powers are, you know, it was from infection. So I guess. You know. well, and to be clear, when I say nerd, I do not mean that in any kind of derogatory. Oh, no, I, I, okay. I, I, that's a term of endearment for me. Okay, you know? Good, good. We're on, <laughs> so, this, we're on the same page know, there. <laughs> I mean, you know, you look at who, who has, who are the biggest billionaires, Bezos, and, you know, they're, they're you know, they, 20, 30 years ago, they would have been the kid, you know, being made fun of. So yeah. that's a term of endearment for me. Well, and I'm really grateful for the page you created. Um, Thank you. You know, it's full of science. It's full of scientific skepticism. Politics really aren't welcome there. Natural remedies aren't really welcome there. No. You, you do a good, anti-vaxxers aren't welcome there. Thank no, goodness. absolutely not. I, I like how you've, you're trying to create a space where we can have conversations and, and answers. You know, we can talk to you and we can talk to other MDs and PhDs, you know, and we can ask questions and get answers in a very one-to-one -one real personal way with with at least less maybe not maybe not devoid but less bias and hocus pocus and yeah. misinformation and disinformation as you were talking about earlier um what what was it that prompted you to decide that you wanted to create an online community of like around youtube and social media i think for me it's just that you know uh you know i'm beyond the scientist and a lot of the stuff that i do is we publish, we try to write grants, but we do a really horrendous job in getting that to the, to the public. And I think that not only do we not communicate it as well as we could, um, some do better than others. You know, I love watching Neil deGrasse, for example. <laughs> so like, but, you know, trying to remove the partisanship and the politics from science. You know, I grew up in the eight, late in the eighties and the nineties, you know, and scientists were you know we've lost the idea of experts that experts matter and that you know in a democracy everyone everyone has an opinion and that's great to have an opinion but we and it, it's part of healthy democracy you know going back to plato and socrates they talked about this right i've read a lot more of existential literature lately and going back to my old plato and 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 the republic and reading about what he said you know three thousand years ago uh and how to how what they thought you know and um so for me, uh, I, I wanted to deal with it twofold, right? I wanted to deal with actually combating the virus directly, but also the misinformation, you know, because we're, we're, we don't have strong leadership. And that's not only a problem for the United States, it's for a lot of different countries. Uh, there's only a handful that have a strong enough leadership that have been able to go in and say, look, we're gonna test robustly we're going to um, get people, we're going to quarantine people, and we're going we're gonna to use our funds correctly 
to help the day-to-day persons. And, uh, you know, and I commend places like New Zealand and, and uh, South Korea and uh, Iceland, who've done a fantastic job of testing their people. And, you know, I mean, it was official that, you know, that New Zealand had no more cases. <laughs> so, you know, and we could have done this. And it's, it's for me, it's the greatest American tragedy. Um, we've lost 60, probably almost probably 60, 63,000 Americans in a, in a matter of 102 days. That's more people that have died from this virus than uh, people that died in 15 to 20 years of Vietnam. More people that died with this virus than the Korean War. More people that have died from this virus than World War I. And more people have died from this virus than all the years in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. In Afghanistan, we've been there, God knows how long, since at least two, uh, since 9-11. So 19 years. There are kids growing up today. My own daughter doesn't know a world without us being in Afghanistan. There are kids that are dying today in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in Syria and these places that don't even know why we're there. And not to get too politics, and I, you know, I try to make my page uh, a place about politics, but these are the facts. And that, you know, we lost more Americans yesterday than we've lost in all of the time of Afghanistan in one day. So when you hear things that this is just like the flu, that this is just like cancer, or this is that, more Americans are dying from this than any other disease right now and uh and it's not a giant conspiracy to that it's and you know and it's not um it is not as well it's not a thing that uh people are adding you know there's this thing about well we mark it down as covid we get more money uh you know people are dying people are dying you know people are dying in the ambulance before they even get to the hospital. They are dying in the waiting rooms. They are dying in uh, there. And our healthcare of people are dying because of lack of PPE. They are wearing used, uh, used smocks and stuff from baseball games. We don't have enough masks for them. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't, we're not testing enough. And it is the sum of all my fears that we open this up again and without having our stay-at-home options, without testing, and that this will double, triple. Uh, personally, as a virologist and a, as, as, a, as a human being, a compassionate human being, uh, I can't sleep very well <laughs> because, you know, it's not just about the old or the sick and this kind of thing. This are, these are people that are just like you and me, you know, like anyone. Even animals are getting sick for this, tigers and cats and dogs. I mean, you know, this is, and instead of viewing it as a partisan issue of it's this or that and the other, it has to be about this is a person. This is a person that has value, that has dignity, that has a right to clean air and clean water and a right to exist. There, I mean, and 
we're Americans, <laughs> you know, like this is what we were, we were founded on, you know? And that's why I started the page because there's were so many people over the last six weeks that were like, you know, Rick, you know, some random person I haven't seen in 20, 30 years since high school, right? Or grade school. And they're like, Rick, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Oh, I have not worked directly on these viruses. I've worked on the big three. I've worked on flu. I've worked on HIV. I've worked on hep C. I've worked on human peggy virus G. I mean, some of these are retroviruses, positive sense strand viruses. And I've, I've worked on phage forever. <laughs> so, uh, and viruses that don't even have names yet, you know, and they infect random bacteria or random fungi. But, you know, at the end of the day, all I know is my training from graduate school and my training from that and my years of working with an interest in viruses, reading these papers. And I, I just said to myself, well, I, I can't continue to, you know, comment on other people's stuff. Uh, I'm going to start my own thing. I wanted to do my own YouTube channel. I just am not a, I'm doing a lot of things and I'm not a video editor yet. So I'm working <laughs> on that. So I'm learning, you know, with, as a scientist, you try to learn everything and, you know, and you're, you know, you're good at certain things, but you know, I, I haven't done a lot of media and broadcasting and editing yet. So I'm working on that. Uh, so I, I said, you know, finally, after this one group was like, well, I don't want to hear this information uh, that people are dying and they kicked me out of their group. I said, man, I got to do something. So I started this, your friendly neighborhood virologist. It's, it's a, it is a, it is a pun off Spider-Man. And, you know, and I, I, I thought of it as this way. It's like, you know, back, you know, a hundred years ago, there was a town doctor, right? In rural, it was, we were more rural. We had our own, we had communities and, you know, you could go to, you know, Jimbo at the old corner and he, you would, he would, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't always be the best information, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Because, you know, even 150 years ago, you know, or, you know, 170 years ago, you know, the dentist and the barber and the, the guy who did the horseshoeing was also the, the doctor, right? <laughs> so I, I'm not quite there. <laughs> but uh, I just, I think for me, it was thinking about, you know, the community that people have, you know, and, and you know, we're living more in cities now, we're, we're not, we're not owning homes much anymore. Um, but being able to go, well, I don't know what's the right answer. What is the right answer? And we don't even try to say what's the right answer. We just say, here is the current peer-reviewed or preprint information. And if you have a question, we'll do the best we can. And we're gonna have you know, PhDs and MDs that are experts in a variety of different sciences trying to say, look, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, you know? And you know, this thing is evolving fast, you know, this, the misinformation is evolving faster than we can keep up with it. But just a place that like it, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, blue or red or green or polka dot with your politics. Right. Right. I don't care. I, I want you to be safe the bottom end of the line. And I want your family to be safe. Uh, and I want you to, I want you to, I want you to be, not die from this. So um, that's why I did it. As well with my company, we are trying actively to get funding uh, to go after this virus directly. So, and testing and these kind of things as well. So for me, it's a, it's a different time and it's a, it's, a, it's a different universe. And we, I hope we never, I hope that it changes us in a positive manner. I hope we take steps to know that 
you know, we can't wait on these kind of things that we have to be thinking about them all the time and we need to invest broadly in science and we have to train more scientists and we need people in power that have scientific literacy. I think that should be a, a requirement. If you don't have it, I'm, I'm sorry, you can't lead people correctly. Right, I feel like you, I think you're okay as long as you have somebody you can trust that you're gonna rely on, believe. And like if you have, regardless of who's the current political leader, Right. If you're turning to doctor, say somebody like Dr. Fauci, and you're saying you're going to be instrumental in guiding this policy, and I'm going to listen right. to you, because you know no matter what, no matter what gets thrown at a president or somebody in power, there's always a chance it's going to be outside of their expertise. Right. If you a good leader surrounds himself with experts, turns to them, listens to them, believes them. And Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax organization. We cannot endorse, cannot endorse or attack politics, only policy. But uh, I don't feel like the current policies are doing much to help. No, <laughs> I, help. I would say, you know, as a citizen and not a representative of my company or my university, I would say uh, no. Yeah. Well, I, and I, was... I would say that we, we should be, you know, it, there's been estimated of about $100 billion dollars to test people and about, and we need to hire about a hundred thousand people for uh, case, uh, case trackers. That's create that creates tremendous amounts of jobs. We have 30 million people out of work right now. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we could def declare a defense act that would allow us to switch uh, to making ventilators and we could, you know, and we could get better PPE in place. So we don't have to close the meat plants down. And I mean, politics aside, I, I, going back to your question about a middle schooler and grade <laughs> schooler, I don't know if I answered that effectively or not, but science is getting cut. Music is getting cut. PE is getting cut. Uh, our basic education is getting cut. So when I say basic scientific literacy, it starts at age two or three, that the earth isn't flat, that um, the... And that has been known for almost 2,000 years <laughs> or 3,000 years. I mean, it was, uh, it was an Egyptian who figured this out. Um, and that, you know, the natural world matters, you know, and that we live, we live, we should live with it and not against it. And that we, you should understand the basics, you know, uh, of science that, you know, we are made of DNA, <laughs> you know, these type of things. And that, you know, we've, we've come a long way, but I think with the rise of, of, of these devices that have connected us all, it's created other problems. And so for me, I think we, we, have to main, we have to have great education and better forms of education and remodel our forms of education. That includes graduate school and, and that type of things as well. A, a, new, a new way to, to educate our kids coming up and then have an emphasis on science and math and engineering and stuff like this. Um, and be able to also not only do that, not only generally educate them, but also to ed educate them at a lower cost and then at, and for jobs that exist now, not a hundred years ago. Right. So, um, I'm sorry. I was, I, you know, I was, I was thinking I was, or when I was thinking about this interview, I was going to have you explain like why we should take this so seriously. And as we've been talking and you've listed the deaths and, 
how serious it is as I feel like this is a silly question. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to ask that question. Um, <laughs> but well, I guess we could compare it to flu versus uh, oh, you know that's yes. the big one. Yeah, no, you know everyone I get lately is it's just like flu. It's just like the seasonal flu. Okay, uh, this is not like the seasonal flu <laughs> at all. This is uh, has a higher R naught, so infectious rate. Can you, can you stop there for just a moment sure. and describe? Because I feel like I, I've, because I've been listening and consuming and then with my microbiology background, I understand what R0 is. And I feel like yeah. that's a term that gets used a lot and more and more in the general, like in mass media. Right. But I don't know how many people, like I think people think they know what R0 means. <laughs> Right. But I don't know how many people know what R0 means. Could you just take a moment to describe what yeah, that so is? Yeah, so the R0 is the basic replication unit of a virus. So it's the replication number. So it's a way to, an epidemiologist tells spread. So if I have an R0 of 10, for measles, for example, I will, on average, infect 10 people. It's that simple. For an R0 of 3, on average, I will infect 3 people, right, in the first round right? But then everything is exponential. Then they would go, then that three would do three and three and three and three and three, and three right? So it's just a basic rec uh, replication unit that we use in epidemiology and virology and bacteriology or any pathogen for that matter to get at how many infections will they generate, right? So um, we get a lot of false information about how it's just not as bad, you know, and there's anywhere from 24 to 61,000 deaths from flu. And I, I, you know, initially I was like, you know, it, it can't be as bad. It's not a big deal. It's not as bad as flu. I, I admit to that. Uh, but we did not know what we were dealing with. That's clear. Um, these viruses are 30% of all common colds come from coronaviruses. The other 50% come from rhinoviruses. Um, so you have mild symptoms, you know, mild cold flu-like symptoms and they go away. We don't know a lot about these viruses and there's six other human uh, coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Um, they make you feel awful <laughs> for a couple of days, but they don't go on. And so there's been no emphasis in pharma or research to really work on them. And even lecturing about coronaviruses uh, prior to SARS, it was, you know, it was just a one page, it causes the common cold. Next, it's one slide, <laughs> you know, uh, I, you know, even when I was an undergraduate, you know, and now it, and then SARS hit in 2003, 2004, and 778 people died uh, globally. And we closed it quick enough with that virus because it wasn't as catchy as this other virus, right? It didn't, it wasn't able to spread so well. This new COVID-19 SARS uh, CoV-2 uh, has a tremendous ability to spread both on contact, both from, uh, both from droplets that are in the air, uh, sneezes, uh, coughing, and it had, and in the in acute phase, uh, first, you know, 72 hours to 96 hours of infection, you may not feel any different. You may feel a little hot, maybe feverish, but then, uh, and then there's only a, and then a lot of people they don't progress to more systemic disease, but then some uh, do. And what it, and then what happens is, is that you, the virus replicates in the lower respiratory tract and it starts killing cells rapidly and then fluids leak and then they can't breathe. And so that's why they have to have an artificial 
artificial um, respiratory stuff, ventilators. Uh, and mainly the reason for that is that the immune system in trying to overtake the virus neutrophils, right? So it's not the classical cytokine storm that we hear about with flu. It's more neutrophils coming in and kind of doing a scorched earth type of approach where they're going in and they're killing healthy and normal cells. And all that fluid builds up. And so people uh, can't breathe. And so they need to be on it on ventilation. And, you know, we don't really have a good number, uh, and we may never know the true number because we haven't tested people at the beginning and after the outbreak. Um, but what we need is whole populations. Uh, my state of Idaho, we have 1.7 million people. We should be able to test 1.7 million people, uh, both you know, for using quantitative PCR, which directly detects the virus, and then some sort of antibody test that allows us to whether you know you had it or not. Now we're seeing with these detections using PCR, a lot of people are saying, well, people are, clear, are recovering and then, and then they're still showing up positive. And so that seems to be, at least uh, this kind of anecdotal information, I'd have to see a public peer-reviewed paper, uh, that it might be bits of the virus or either that or false positives, but the virus is not active. Um, but we need testing, we need, um, anti we need an antibody test in order to figure out at least if you've had presence or contact with it. And then we need, um, you know, then we need to be able to say, okay, you know, me, Rick, I'm infected and, you know, and my wife and daughter are here and we'll quarantine. And then all the people that I've talked to, they stay in quarantine until I'm better or I die. <laughs> so, you know, like, uh, and then, you know, they don't get it. They go another 14 days and they don't get it. And then that flatten, you know, we hear a lot about flattening the curve, right? And there's a historical perspective to that. And so we, this isn't our first rodeo. We had a rodeo in 1918. In Philadelphia and, New, and, and St. Louis, Philadelphia had uh, this idea, well, we're still going to have a parade for financial goal and to gain finances and stuff like this, 1918. And so they opened up this giant, this giant, like, uh, it was like a parade. Uh, where uh, lots of people were contacting, you know, there wasn't a lot of social distancing and where St. Louis said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to close it down and see what happens. And so they had a huge, tremendous spike. So part of the area of the curve kind of went like this, went straight up and then crashed, right? It's more acute, right? And the cases end quicker, but more people die because the system is overwhelmed. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a clog in a, in a drain. It just, it doesn't, it can't be, it can't do them on so people die. Where St. Louis just keeps it kind of, it kept it kind of, we're just going to isolate, isolate, isolate until let it go. And then if there are cases, we can treat them because we're not overwhelmed. The other thing with the way that medicine is ran in the United States is that there's no financial benefit for most hospitals to have more ventilators or have more beds, right? It gets into cost issues, right? So you may only have in a, a hospital, you may only have 15 beds because that's the maximum amount of bed that they're compared to. But when you have 2000 people <laughs> that need ventilators, those, the, the death rates just skyrocket. Yeah. I'm thinking of, um, I don't know what part of Idaho you're in, but I spent uh, 20 years working in a small community hospital mm -hmm. and was a, you know, a quote unquote 50 bed hospital, which meant we had like 20 actual patient beds for, you know, yeah. taking care of people long-term. And, and yeah, the town was 30,000 people and those 20 beds worked was just fine normally. Yeah. 
but as if this ravages through that town of 30,000 people, there's that, those 20 beds you, and, and like maybe one of them is a negative pressure room, you know, yeah. but you can't take care of that. So when I hear you talking about, you know, the curve and, and flattening the curve so we can take care of people and the clog and the drain, it's like, yeah, that, that town and towns like it need to make sure that they limit the number of people who are sick at any one time. Like right. it's going to, it's going to go through the whole population eventually. But yeah. let's let it get there. So I, one of the uh, analogies that actually my favorite analogy that I've heard was uh, you can ask somebody to drink five gallons of water in a month. That's easy. But you ask somebody to drink five gallons of water in a day, that's <laughs> difficult and it might kill you. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely correct. So this is kind of the same, the same idea. And you know, so, I, go ahead. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to mention another thing that is, is, is another thing that's bothering me, you know, is uh, when I, you know, the, the lack of PPE is one thing. And, you know, we should be able to, we, in a perfect world, we'd be able to make N95 masks for everybody and, and or N99 even better, because even with N95s, there's a, still 5% get through, right? So, um, but what I, what I don't understand and is um, even with, you know, my wife and I've been making a lot of masks for people. Um, and then of course I might even put this on the website, uh, to say, look, if you need a mask, we'll send you one <laughs> as long as you'll pay for shipping. Um, because, uh, I, we have to wear masks. We have to social distance. We have to wash our material coming back from the store. And yes, it's a lot more work, but it's worth it. You know, um, and when I see people in the store where they're not wearing masks or they're not wearing it correctly or they're, it's not a big thing. It is a big thing, folks. Like, and if you get infected, you will infect three people. Those people will infect three people. And within, you know, 21 days, you infected a hundred people, right? Or even, even more, right? So um, we have to do this. We, it's, it's, it's annoying. Yeah. It's it. You have to put on a mask. Like you have to, you have to wash your hands more. You have to be cognizant of touching your face, but it's a thing that is the matter of your life. And it's your life is in the balance as well as the lives of others that cannot get treatment, that cannot leave their house, uh, that are, you know, immune deficient from whatever reason that is or, or elderly. And going back to what I said before is that, they, they're, they're sentient human beings, you know, they, they matter. Um, so thinking about what you're just talking about with masking, I feel like there's been some confusion on the general public about like what the current best practices are for keeping yourself infected or from being infected for keeping yourself safe right. and from keeping others safe from, you know, from yourself in case you don't know that you're infected. Right. Um, what, can you go over like what are the what are the best practices right now for just not not for somebody working in an ICU unit but for like right. somebody just you know they're they have a nine to five job where they're an essential worker worker at McDonald's or yeah. they're self quarantining at home but you know you have to go to the grocery store every once in a while to get more toilet right. paper because you know right. you're not gonna you're not gonna use Instacart for everything and plus yeah. you know Instacart's on strike so like what are your best what's the best things I can do you know I. 
I think for me is wearing, you know, obviously these other masks are by far superior. There are other better respirators if you can get them. Uh, even a even a handmade mask with a lining, you can get inserts for them, but having a mask, uh, I think is important. I think as well is wearing your mask. And I think it's to distance people, distance for people at least, you know, six feet, if not longer. Six feet is just the bare minimum. And it's, you know, over 50 years old, the six feet limit. Um, there's evidence out of MIT that you need 23 to 27 feet with aerosols. And in, in, a, in, a, in a grocery store, that's almost impossible. I mean, it's basically impossible. And, and Fauci commented about that today. But I think with aerosols and stuff in the air, that, and they, these things linger in the air, right? So being sure to have a mask, being sure to have, um, you know, I, I wear glasses, so I get a little bit of eye protection. You know, if you can wear goggles, it might be helpful because it, you know, it could infect those other tissues. And then uh, having clothes that you immediately, when you go to the store, that you 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 take those clothes off, your shoes, everything, you put them in uh, a thing outside uh, to then Lysol them or use uh, seventy percent ethanol. Uh, I recommend ethanol over bleach for you know non-whites because you'll change all your colors on your on your clothes <laughs> to bleach colors, <laughs> white colors. So, you know, uh, so don't do that. <laughs> so otherwise you'll ruin your clothes. <laughs> but, it, so, but if it uh, is bleach, use 10% bleach. Yeah. And of course, 10% bleach is preferred. And there is a contact thing here as well, right? Surfaces, uh, you know, you need 70% bleach and you need to let it sit there for a bit. Um, you know, if you can, you know, use like hand sanitizer, this is really great. Um, but if you can't, 70% bleach, a 17%, a 70, 70% ethanol works. Uh, usually you can go to a liquor store and you'll find Everclear. Um, that will work. Um, and, you know, for, <laughs> uh, for your, if you can't find anything else, you can't find hand sanitizer, you can't find anything, you know, sometimes liquor stores will have Everclear and you can use that. You can't use, because Everclear is 75% uh, alcohol by volume. So that's way above the 70, the 60% limit. You can't use Tito's vodka because that's only 40%. I mean, you technically you could dry the Tito's vodka down to get there, but you'd lose that's, most of your vodka. Seems like right? a lot of work here. Like, yeah, it'd be a so lot basically, of work. Together, but you I, could do it. You could I need a hundred, I need 140 proof alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, you know, and so, uh, and then immediately after you take your clothes off, uh, try to get into a shower almost immediately. Hot, uh, you can be, you can be a hot or cold shower, just a good duration and try to soap up and try to get every orifice of yourself. And then your food, uh, I would say at least, uh, you know, use 70%, uh, use 10% bleach or 70% ethanol and really wipe it, make sure it dries. And then um, for produce, um, ethanol and so soaking works really well and just soak. Or if you can let it sit there for a day or two. I'd say two days. Uh, it's 48 hours. Most of the most of the virus will not survive beyond that, at least based on the New England Journal of Medicine uh, thing. Now, there's plastics; it can last a little longer. Wood and all these other things. With mail, uh, we te I tend to, you know, people have been throwing those in the microwave and stuff like that. Don't do that. <laughs> um, you know, I we tend to quarantine our mail and leave it, and then we'll read it later in two days or more because uh, that way we know it's safe. Um, you know, gloves, gloves are great, um, but then you have to take them on and off again. Uh, so, uh, and then with hand washing 20 seconds, so 
you can sing like happy birthday to yourself it's usually about 20 seconds uh, if, you uh, are if you're familiar with the movie dune you can just go over that fear is the mind killer and you get down down to that whole like little spiel that is uh, that, that, that dates us a lot actually where people know what dune is <laughs> we, there's a movie coming out uh yeah, a, a new movie coming out hopefully and they'll get it right this time we can actually <laughs> We actually have that Fear is a Mind Killer in our micro lab next to one of our hand washing sinks. Awesome. That's awesome. So I always want to back up. You were saying, um, were you saying that I should potentially soak my fruit and produce in 70% alcohol? Well, I I would say like lettuce, uh, it's 70% alcohol. You're not going to be able to get in all the crevices. Right. So you can soak that in water for a, a good amount of time and wash it at least three or four times. Okay, because I'm thinking help. that soaking things in alcohol, this sounds like pickling almost. Yeah, you know, I, you know, and so like stuff like an apple or a mango or something like that that has like a, a skin you could wipe with ethanol, but something okay. like lettuce would be impossible, right? Right. right. So, um, you know, and so, you know, when I buy like arugula at the store or lettuce, I usually, it's in a plastic container and I can clean the plastic container and then I put that in the fridge for two days and then I, and then I assume that it's going to be okay. Right. Or at least um, you're getting it to a point where risk benefit, the, the risk at that point is right. so low that there's probably you know, potatoes, other things. For example, stuff that have a hard skin, you know, 70% ethanol and then a wash probably will work, but other produce probably not. Do you think people truly understand and believe, I think is key here too, in the idea of asymptomatic carrying carriers and cross-contamination? So I don't know if it's really, I, so this is an interesting thing. So this has come up a couple of times. So the, when, and maybe it's just my training. Um, and so they're not asymptomatic carriers, right? So when, when we think of asymptomatic character, we think of Mary Ballin, right? Typhoid Mary, right? And we think about how she had this extremely virient, virulent form of salmonella typhonarium, right? And, and, you know, and she was perfectly healthy, right? And so it lived somehow in her gut. She didn't wash her hands when she prepared food. So it was a fecal oral kind of contamination and it, it killed people because of this virulent form of, the, of salmonella that lived, I guess, in her gut that, um, that somehow uh, did not give her really horrendous symptoms to where she could continue to work. So that's when I think of an asymptomatic character. They have, the, they have this organism, but they have no symptoms at all, right? Whereas with people with COVID, they have the virus. They are going through active infection. The symptoms are mild, so they don't even realize it's there. And then eventually the immune system destroys it or it just runs out of steam. We don't know, right? Um, we assume that there, we, there's one really brilliant paper out of, it's very low numbers, but brilliant paper out of uh, PNAS where they took plasma from people that recovered and they put them into severe patients and that it, the people that were suffering really bad got better. And so we know that there's neutralizing antibodies. We don't know how long they last and we don't know how, because we, you know, this is a new, this is the new, new kid on the block. We don't know with this virus, it's only been around, you know, really since December of last year, November, December of last year. So we don't know if this thing, okay, well, if you get sick, 
how long does your immunity last? You know, if you have something like chickenpox, you get a vaccine once, you get it once and you're immune. You never have to worry about it again. Whereas with flu, you know, there's all kinds of recombination. You have multiple different strains with eight parts of its genome. And so it's just basically playing puzzles and it makes a new virus, you know, or it makes a small mutation that, you know, changes where the immune system can't deal with it as well. Um, we've been lucky enough to, that we dealt with a, uh, uh, a huge thing with swine origin, and that was actually mild. Um, that it didn't, it actually got less, you know, there were very, some very virulent strains of it, but they were quarantined, but then it got less virulent as it went along, which was odd for an influenza. Uh, this one, we, we don't assume that it will have these massive bits of reco uh, recombination. Um, we, I, as well, um, bats, the bat uh, reservoir, or so where the virus resides. So if you have a well and you're trying to get water, uh, that's your reservoir. That's where all the water is. So that's what we mean in virology when we talk about reservoir. So the horseshoe bat, this particular bat, uh, has a wide variety of these viruses. Um, and they've been studying them since the SARS, uh, original SARS outbreak in Wuhan and all over China and even you know, everywhere, right? Uh, but, you know, the people that are supposed to live in any of these caves where these, where these bats are, they supposedly have antibodies to the virus and they don't get sick. So that, that's a good sign that potentially, or if they do get sick, they, it's not able to spread. Right. Um, so they're not able to leave the local community. I mean, I mean, in Ebola was like this as well, like, you know, it never really got out of the Congo um, until, you know, we got it in, you know, when they had, you know, this only happened twice where it had an infected, um, you know, Marburg's its cousin in, with infected monkeys in Marburg, Germany or with uh, Ebola Reston. But Ebola Reston, we found out, was just a, a, a only a monkey virus, and it doesn't seem to infect humans. So we, 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 we really got lucky with those two. And the last Ebola outbreak, uh, it was, it didn't kill as, it didn't kill as fast. And so it was able to spread, and it led to, you know, I think, I believe, around 5,000 dead, I believe. Something like 3,000 to 5,000 dead, I don't remember off the top of my head. But if you're, if you're a virus that is very virulent and lethal, you really seldom leave your local area. Now, if you're a virus that has, you know, if you're a virus that you don't have a lot of symptoms right away, and then all of a sudden you get huge systems that it takes years, for example, to develop symptoms, uh, this virus can spread very rapidly and you don't even know until it's too late. And this is what happens with HIV, right? So. HIV potentially can take years for you to know that you have it, but you have it and you're spreading it and you don't know it, but you're not asymptomatic. You're just, you don't, you don't have, you have symptoms, but you just don't know it. <laughs> so it's, I, I guess it's a little, you know, maybe a chicken or the egg kind of thing, but you know, I think when I think of asymptomatic, I think of people that they harbor it, but they have no ill effects from it at all. Whereas with people that were COVID-19, they do have symptoms, a variety, a plethora of symptoms, and there's something wrong, <laughs> but they're able, you know, but it, but they don't progress severe uh, where they need respirators and these kind of things. No, that makes sense. Like at first, I'm like, oh, you're kind of beat a pedant, but as you make sense, as you explain it, um, that makes complete sense, and I actually like like the way you put that. Yeah. Um. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, you know, I saw a a disturbing cartoon from a former coworker. Uh, who is actually a clinical microbiologist. Um, and the, the punchline, punchline is in air quotes, um, 
is that the, this person gets ill and they're talking about how terrified they are because, oh, there's only 99% survival rate. And it's like, it's a really poor attempt at humor. It's really punching down to the people who have, you know, who get sick and who are dying of this disease. And like you right. said, 60,000 people in two months. But thinking about the survival rate, because I have heard this before, and this is a, yes. a talking point. But can you kind of maybe discuss on why focusing on what the survival rate is? This is a great can, question. And yeah, I'm only smiling because it's a great question. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'm only smiling. Not that it's, it's absolutely horrendous and I don't want right. to take it away. But, you know, this is a great question. So if I had a jar of jelly beans, we'll say, and they're absolutely delicious, the best jelly beans you've ever had. And I then tell you, two of those jelly beans in that bowl of jelly beans will kill you. Would you put your hand and eat the jelly beans? No, no, no one would. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> so. I have problems with self-control, but I understand what you're saying. Right. I, so I, e even if we look at like salmonella and E. coli outbreaks in produce, what, we, what is the first thing we do? We remove that romaine lettuce outright, even if there's a chance of that, of death, right? So I'm just saying to the, and that's how I approach to people. If you're okay, and, and it's not even that simple as just eating the jelly beans. Not only that, the two jelly beans will kill you and will kill your whole family, <laughs> right? You would not take that chance. I, I know I would. Maybe some people would. I don't know. And I, a, I think a good analogy to follow up with that is, is you know, it's that idea of, well, but uh, I have personal will and personal freedom, and this is my liberty to eat that jelly bean. And my thought is, well, yeah, but it's fair to that person who didn't choose the jelly bean. Right. Your choice it's, is now going to kill. Right. This is the thing. So there's, there's individualism, and it's part of our ethos as the United States. But it's also... Uh, if it infringes on someone else's freedom, that's also against kind of that whole mantra, right? Is that by you eating that lethal jelly bean and hurting your family, that your neighbor is also, and they had no choice. And so that infringes on their freedom as well. And so I, I know that argument, I've heard it a million times. And so this has been my way to, to, to tackle it. It's like, look, you know, not you, there is, you know, you know, two jelly beans out of a thousand, you know, yeah, sure. Uh, likely you're not going to get the lethal jelly bean, right? But if you do, you not only hurt yourself, you hurt someone else, your family directly, because you're going to be around your family and your friends. And you hurt someone over here that you don't even know. So... When I drive around, like, it's like I work, not every day, but most, most every day. Um, when I'm driving to and from work, driving past uh, the park system in Minneapolis, huge extensive park system, I'm seeing lots and lots of people, usually in that 18 to 35-year-old age range, out and about acting like there's nothing wrong. It's a gorgeous day. We're going to get outside and enjoy it. What do you tell these 20-something-year-old people who just don't think that this is serious like yeah and and as a parent and a healthcare yeah. worker who maybe has 20 something year old kids who are taking this too seriously 
you know, what's, this is a question, not, I'm not, I'm not asking for a friend. I'm asking for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an 18 year old myself and, you know, the class of 2020, you know, I graduated in 99, you know, but you know, 20 years later I have my daughter and it's, it's a thing that is, they don't have their senior prom this year. They're not going to have their, you know, hopefully they won't walk and do their graduation uh, because that's a threat to everybody. Um, you know, uh, my daughter also is a CNA, so she's a healthcare worker and she deals with folks and she doesn't go to the one unit because uh, they don't have proper PPE. Um, I have nursing friends and stuff like this. And, uh, you know, you know, it's obviously part of, you know, adolescence to rebel against your parents. I know I did. We all do, you know. Uh, but this is one where it's like, you know, people my age, people younger, there was, a, there was, there's little children that are dying from it as well. It, you know, initially out of China, it was like, well, it's only older people. It's only the sick. Um, and that we know is, is not a hundred percent true. Although even when it is that such a gross thing to hear, like, I realize that's yeah. not the statement you're making. No, that's, just, that's the argument not. that we hear from other people. That's the argument that we yeah. hear. And I just hear that. And I just, yeah, it's just that's gross the to think. These are people. I, I know yeah. that. I know there's the phrase "okay boomer," and I actually use that <laughs> phrase. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, in certain situations, yeah, but, like no, that I doesn't mean that. Everything from that generation, it's the it's the boomer cleanser to every other just horrendous thing. And look, these are people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the end of the day, these are human beings. Yeah, and I'm hearing they this from people who profess. These people, you know, most of my, you know, my friends and my, my, the people, my, this, my social circles are very, you know, sure, they're very great about this, but I even hear this, you know, quote unquote, social justice warriors like myself, who are like, the idea that, that they're not treating their fellow humans as humans just disgusts me. And it just, yeah. we should be caring about all the lives I don't want to say all lives matter. That just sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> let's not go there. Let's 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 yeah, get back different. to the, I, <laughs> yeah. I think let's get back to let's get back to um, you know let's get back to that. So how do we guess, make how do we make people take this seriously? Who are younger and who are like I'm I'm going to live forever. This is never going to affect me. Well, you know, you know, at least when I was an adolescent, and they showed me pictures of some of the symptoms of STDs, like I hate to scare people into doing it but and i don't want to advocate that but you know like when i was growing up and as you as well like we we lived through the hiv epidemic and you know we didn't know who had it and but we i know i did i sure as heck wore a condom right you know because and some people didn't you know and you know people are going to make you know people are people and they're going to make awful decisions you know and you know or good decisions it, it, you know but it's just look you know um, I think in the way that you tell someone, it's like, look, you know, um, yeah, you may not get die from this, right? That's true. But, you know, find their favorite person. Like who, and that's how I approach it. Who is your favorite person in your life? Who's the one that you, is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it an uncle? Is it a coach? Something like that. And, and they'll say, oh, it's, you know, Coach Robbins or something, right? And he's my football coach or whatever. Well, uh, how would your life be if he wasn't there anymore? Would you want that? And the answer I get is like, absolutely not. No way. 
Um, well, you're putting on that mask to not only protect yourself, but to protect Coach Robbins or one of his family members, you know? And so uh, think of that, right? That someone that you, that has helped you and become a better person or is your buddy, your best friend, or that someone will say is my best friend. How would it be without them if they weren't there tomorrow? And most of them will say, I can't even think about that. That won't happen. Well, think of it this way. If you love them enough to be, have them be in your life, you can love them enough to wear a mask or to wash your hands. You know, as you're talking, something that comes to mind is the idea that many people, I don't want to overgeneralize, some yeah. people under 20 have, and I know I probably felt the exact same way, that I'm somehow better than previous generations and I'm not going to repeat their mistakes. And as I hear somebody who's maybe 15 to 25 say, the boomers destroyed this country, the generation Xers destroyed this country, they've made bad choices. But if they're choosing to not do anything to, to limit the spread of this pandemic, they're making a different choice, but they're making that same bad choice. They're making the same choice that they're going to be judged on by the people, you know, that are born, you know, the quarantini babies that are born <laughs> in 10 years, you know. Like. Right. I mean, this is this thing, this is, this thing is, you know, it's, I, I got out of Game of Thrones fans here. It's like the Night King, right? It, it doesn't have, it doesn't have, it doesn't talk. It doesn't, it just kills. That's all right. it does. That's all it knows how to do is kill. You know, it's designed to replicate um, and it kills us by accident, a perfect, you know, most virus, some viruses, you know, part of our own virome, like there's viruses that can protect you, uh, like human Peggy virus G, there's correlation that says it can prevent uh, progression of symptoms in HIV. Like there's, there's a phage that if you have it, it can protect you from uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, you know, but this one, if it gets into humans, uh, there's a, there's a small chance that you will die from it. And then there's also the chance that if you don't die from it, you can kill someone else by holding, by carrying it and not knowing that you have it. So, and this was the same thing we, we dealt with in the eighties and the nineties with HIV, right? It, it's, this is an airborne, this is an air, air, uh, you know, it's a droplet pathogen that is passed through sneezing and, and uh, coughing. So we, and you know, it's almost, it's Schrodinger's virus. We both know we have it. <laughs> and don't have it and we have a test and don't have a test and so we are both we are basically schrodinger's cat and you know we're both alive and dead at the same time and so if it's as simple as washing in your hands cleaning your stuff um being extra cautious not to touch your face and wear a mask i think it's worth it to, to say to help save your life because you don't know you don't know like you know even you know we don't know like if we have some sort of condition that we don't know about, right? right? You know, um, but I think, you know, we have to make the choice of preventing further loss. You, you mentioned testing there for a moment and I'm wondering, um, as we've seen an increase in testing, we're also seeing an increase in the number of positive cases. Can you go over how, like, how we determine what the rate of new infections are that are actually really new infections compared to just learning about people who 
you know, with the, th- there were already people infected and pot, like, does that, am I making sense? Like, yeah, what are the no, new so, cases versus like what the background cases already were? So the main, so the main two tests are from Thermo Fisher and Roche. And so these are quantitative PCRs. So they isolate uh, nucleic acids, uh, RNA, because the virus is an RNA virus. And so it never forms DNA. It's always as RNA, and they are the largest RNA life forms, coronaviruses. They are they're 29 to 30 K, uh, 31 KB in length. They're the only, they're the largest form of RNA life on our in our ecosystem. So that 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 is cool. I wish they weren't killing us, but cool viruses. Um, <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and so they isolate RNA and then they do a high throughput PCR assay and they quantitatively measure it over a certain amount of time and threshold basically an abundance number, and that abundance number tells you whether you're positive or negative. And then this, of course, false positives, false negatives, so false positive says, uh, we think you have it, but it's not really there. False negative is like, well, we don't think you have it because we didn't detect anything, but you still have it. It may be asymptomatic. And this can all be, and so they sample it with a very large Q-tip, and they go in the back of the nose, and they get back in there, and they sample it. Um, and, and then they take that swab and they put it in solution and then they extract nucleic acids and do a test. And so the thought is, is that if you've had two tests within a certain amount of time, uh, I'm hoping, I'm ho- I, I don't know this right off the, t- off the top and I have friends who are clinicians that should tell me this, but at least, you know, for me, if you have one in the beginning and you're positive and then you have 14 days and you have another one that you're negative and then you do another 14 days and you're negative, you are, you have recovered. Um, the antibody tests, all they tell us currently is that you've been exposed and you have antigen. So you have antibodies that are interacting with a protein uh, that is from the virus. So we make you do these things on ELISA uh, or some sort of other assay. Uh, and so you basically coat uh, a plate with protein from the virus and then you take, you take serum and you isolate uh, antibodies from the serum and then they stick onto that protein like this and then if they stick, and then we use some sort of assay for that antibody to light it up, and that says, hey, you have that presence of that antibody. Uh, and that means you have been infected in some form or another, or you've been exposed. We don't know if you're immune, and uh, we don't know the quality of that antibody. And so neutralizing antibodies basically say, okay, well, that antibody sticks to something important on the virus, uh, say the coat protein, and blocks it from entering, and so then you can't get infected. And so that's, and then, and then we hear a lot about herd immunity, you know, Norway is going with, with this idea or Sweden, sorry, not Norway, sorry, sorry, Norway. Uh, <laughs> so um, with Sweden, they've taken approaches like make your best approach, right? And they've gone with this kind of idea of just letting people get infected and then it will go through the population and then there'll be enough immunity in their population uh, to eventually, uh, you won't have any more spread of cases, right? So this, in, and this is my professional opinion, this is a strategy that basically says, well, we don't wanna do anything that might hurt any economy. We don't wanna do anything that would you know, mess with people's lives. And so we're gonna go with this approach. And so um, they have the highest amount of people that are dying from it, from active cases, to around 10% if I remember last time. So, um, uh, we don't know if you can gain long-term herd immunity with these viruses. You know, um, if this was something like a chickenpox or herpes, I'd say, yeah, probably would. 
but we don't know enough about the immunology of this virus or these viruses in general, uh, because we know that you can get potentially the same coronavirus cold, you know, a year later, <laughs> right? So I, I am more on the model of, you know, test robustly, um, track those cases, quarantine those people, and, uh, and it's worked in, you know, those three countries, I mean, they're much smaller. They're not on the scale of the United States, but if we go with the model of just let's open everything up and we don't want the economy to hurt. And I understand that people need to work and people need to make money. Uh, and you know, we don't, we don't want small businesses to close. Like I understand all of that, but think of 10% of Americans dying, <laughs> like, or even 5%. Is that a number, you know, worth it? I don't think it is. Um, I, I think that there's great news that there's, I read a paper in Nature Today about, a, about vaccines that are coming. We might have one that comes very soon. Again, we don't know if with that vaccine, whether it's just a, a quick fix, you know, whether it's like a six month thing and you have to do it another six months. Uh, I think, you know, I don't think these things will become seasonal. Like it's, there's been models about if they would become seasonal. My thought is, is that things become seasonal because they usually go on with migra migration of birds. And so uh, flu, uh, some of the coronaviruses that infect us potentially come in on birds. Um, uh, and so there is some seasonality to that because birds travel, right? Uh, these bats are mainly in China. Um, we are continually encroaching on their territory. We're continually going into areas of the world that we're burning down forests and we're chopping down and, and expanding these type of things. And so we will bump into other things, right? And we need to be prepared uh, for one that isn't, that is more lethal. This virus is not as lethal as some of the ones that I've studied in graduate school and some of the ones that I, I keep me up at night, like measles like viruses, for example, Dependra, right? Uh, those have much higher uh, R-naughts, about five, you know, you know, 10, right? Versus three or two, right? and they're airborne. Um, there's been an outbreak of uh, Nipah virus in Kerala in India, and it was devastating. Um, there are other, you know, there are other viruses out there um, that are, and other pathogens that we have no idea, you know, um, that could be, that are by potentially far more deadly. And so I, it's unfortunate this many people have died, but I think it wakes us up to be like, this is a thing and we need to make real changes in our infrastructure, our medical staff. And, you know, I'm biased, but I think science, technology, and engineering, you invest broadly <laughs> and you will find answers. I mean, NASA at one point during the space race had 11% of the federal budget. And this conversation we're having is due to technology that was developed in that, the, my cell phone here, right, developed. So when you invest broadly in science, you will gain new technologies and you will gain new information, right? If we had invested, you know, $10 billion in researching of these things, we, we would have maybe had a vaccine for, for SARS coronavirus, for SARS viruses in general. And non beyond just like it needs to make money. If it doesn't make money, it's not worth the value. I, I, I don't buy that. I think initially with the structure of DNA, it didn't have any value, right? but it took another 20 years to be able to, you know, 
be able to discover new things of the human genome and, and, and unravel mysteries in the natural universe uh, of the natural world. So, yeah, I'm a diabetic, and if it wasn't for DNA or DNA uh, PCR replication that we got through understanding what DNA is, there wouldn't be synthetic insulin for me to to inject. Right. So, yeah, science. <laughs> um, thinking of science. Um, you deal with a lot of quack pseudoscience. Um, I don't know if you've seen like that coronavirus virus is supposedly caused by 5G cell towers. Oh, or, yeah. You know, things like that. Or, you know, the Bill Gates. This was created by Bill Gates so he could vaccinate people and implant the mark of the beast in them or something. Yeah, whatever. But other than like Lysol nebulizers and UV enemas, what conspiracy theory or quack remedy has struck you as being the most ridiculous, dangerous, or just, just the most memorable? Uh, well, I have a top 10 list and I'm going to put this out on my YouTube channel, uh, pretty <laughs> soon, uh, because I'm just, I'm amazed by some of them. Like some of them are just absolutely. And so if you can give me a minute, uh, I will look this up because I sent it to my friend and we were just all at first laughed. And then second, we're like almost in the point of just. Yeah, this is, terror. this is one of those reasons why I am yeah. such a huge fan of like Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson and yeah, I mean, scientific it, skepticism in general. That. Um, Hopefully there's not like a huge issue with uh, uh, okay. Uh, let me see. Uh, just you know, stuff on my page. You know, <laughs> you know, things are melting. Help us. Yeah. Um, let's see. I had a top ten here, and it was just marvelous. And I'm probably not. Ah, here we go. So. Uh, my favorite that just can't seem to die is this idea of eating bats. That's the one that just is just so absurd <laughs> that I can't. Okay. So first of all, you know, I've been to China multiple times. It's a wonderful, beautiful, ancient country that has kept the ancient with the modern. I'm not going to talk about its government. I'm going to talk about its people. And I'm going to talk about my friends that there are there and a people are not its government. So I wanted to say that. And as, and a lot of my friends in Europe, I tell them that them looking at us. <laughs> so, um, so I will say the idea that this was done by eating bats. And initially I fell into this as well is absolutely absurd. First of all, they don't eat a lot of bats in, in Wuhan and areas like that. Uh, people in Palau actually make a soup from bats, right? And it's a huge part of their culture. Um, so there isn't a lot of bat eating in general. And we don't really know, um, you know, what was the thing in the middle? So it was originally thought this idea of a bat, and then it got jumped into a pangolin, and then the pangolin virus jumped to human. We don't, are the virus uh, in pangolin is only like 91%. Uh, similar to the one uh, to COVID-19 or uh, SARS-CoV-2. And the one out of the bat virus, the, what is it, RA, you know, 3TC or something like that, it's only 96%. So we don't have what we, what we had in SARS-1 where we had the organism that this thing, the mixing host, right? So the civet, right? So we had a person that was, you know, in China, it's part of their, you know, culture and part of their things to, you know, raise and wild animals to, you know, for the migrant for folks in China. 
and it was just part of an industry, right? And I, I think in general, we need to, we need to basically remove, we need to A, remove the wildlife capture and, and smuggling. And then as well, we need to also change our own production food line as well, because swine, uh, uh, swine origin came out of, you know, factory farming. So we need to take a really deep look on how we deal with animals. Because all these things are zoonotic. They come from animals. They don't come from any other thing else, right? Um, so the eating bats. And so that's absolutely absurd. Um, and then the, you know, the idea that, and even it wouldn't be from eating a bat, it would be, even if it was in the bat, it would be from butchering the bat or butchering, you know, in the case of HIV-1, the other one is, the other one with HIV-1 is that it was having sexual intercourse with, with monkeys. That's the other one that just never seems to die. And that is absolutely, again, absurd. <laughs> um, and it, it's only, and it, it is, it is, hunt, it is from butchering the animal. So when you make, when you're cutting up an animal and there's blood and, and um, mu mucus and you're aerosolizing these things and that's where you get sick. Um, so that's the one for me, you know, the two that never die, the first one with, you know, the first one and then the second one is that, that you, you don't get it from eating bats, you get it from butchering animals. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that was one of them. That's like my number one that it just doesn't seem to die. Uh, the other one is that, uh, that is, I guess, um, is that other things are more deadly. Swine origin was more deadly. That again is absolutely, completely absurd and not true. Uh, the other one uh, that I get that is more scientific and it's not going around as much. Uh, we, I even saw it on the, on the Netflix special uh, that this came from snakes. That was the other one. That was, and that was earlier in the, in the pandemic is that this thing came from snakes. Uh, that is also absolutely absurd. Um, it, this, these things, uh, and I, you know, I read this paper. Uh, it is horrible. I don't know how it got through peer review. Um, not all of them are good. That's how peer review corrects itself. So even if it's peer reviewed, be skeptical. It can be wrong. Okay, people get it wrong. Okay, and that's where it gets out into the public and people can understand it. So the analysis, it, it was not very good. And um, there's no evidence that these viruses infect reptiles. There's just none. They infect uh, birds, they infect mammals. That's their main go-to. Now, could they exist in a lower life form? Absolutely. Like, there could, they, could they exist in something like insects or something like that in the guts of insects? Absolutely. We don't know, though. Right? And you have to, and, and so I'll go back to, um, to Richard, uh, Richard uh, Feynman, and he said, for extraordinary claims, you need extraordinary evidence. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and so this is one that it's dead now, but I even saw in the Netflix special, they're saying, you know, both snakes and fish, and that is absolutely, absolutely, utterly absurd. Uh, I mean, there's other one I think that is most ridiculous I saw lately is that it's not a virus at all. It's an exosome. Uh, and so for those who know what an exosome is, these are little invaginations of cells that carry everything from nucleic acids to proteins and that these are man-made exosomes that people are spreading around and stuff like this. And they're, you know, and for me, it's just absolutely preposterous. Uh, and 
you know, I'm like, wow. So we've been able to make self-replicating exosomes. Like that would be a huge deal <laughs> for nanomedicine, right? Uh, well, that that one actually is logically consistent with the idea that cancer is, you know, created by big pharma and they're just holding the cure for us because exosomes would go a long way to curing cancer if we right. understood that technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. So at least it's you a know. logically consistent conspiracy. Yeah, theory. the other one I the other one I see is like they have like a they have like a picture of a vial of virus. That's the other one I saw. That is just absolutely absurd. And so they're holding it, and it says right on the thing, canine coronavirus <laughs> vaccine, canine corona vaccine, and and they're hiding it from you and all this stuff. And first of all, that's for I, I don't know if people know what canines are, and I I, I they're dogs, okay. <laughs> And so, um, you know, they're not people. That's, that's the first part of this that just falls apart. And then second of all, um, it, it's, it's for a dog. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, and it's, it's just, it's not, it's not this thing. And it's not, I just, I don't understand. It's just. I feel like that's a, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how complicated biology is. And yeah. how, how, how there's vast differences between um, canine biochemistry and human biochemistry. Right. That, you know, yeah, we're both using molecules and we're both having biochemical reactions. Right. But they are different biochemical reactions in, in many instances. Many of them are the same, but there's some key differences that are very, very key. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, you know, it just goes back to my original thing that we talked about originally in this is that uh, it, it is literacy, basic yeah scientific literacy and so we have failed uh as educators and as scientists we've failed these people and that's and that's where i i take my i take responsibility for that because uh you know i'm a scientist i work every day i try to pro progress science but i have to be a better scientific community a communicator uh, and I have to be able to kill the pseudoscience. And, and, you know, it's not a new thing. I mean, you know, if you look at Pasteur, you know, he fought spontaneous generation, this idea that, you know, things just magically spontaneously uh, appear, right? And that was utter nonsense, and he proved it wrong. I mean, you know, the idea um, with, List, uh, with Lister, you know, he fought the idea of, like, the guy, you know, going back to the Old West kind of uh, analogy, the guy who was the shoe guy, and the dentist and the and the the butcher was all the same guy right and so in childbirth they would come in with dirty hands and they would give they they would you know uh help the, you know give birth and and uh you know they would die because they got infections right so all it took was them washing their hands right this was lister's big and then there was hillman who said that vaccines matter and we need to make vaccines in order to you know at a mass scale Right. Uh, and basically funded the, you know, the kind of modern vaccine that we think with Merck and these kind of things. So, you know, it's not a new thing. <laughs> it's no. an old thing kind of reshaped and militarized in a, in a form that can touch everybody on the planet within a matter of minutes. But um, I, I think there's a lot of them out there. There's so many um, just horrendous thing, but I, I think it's the main, the main, I guess the main quick creme de la creme is that it's not a hoax. Right. And it's, it's real people are dying. <laughs> Something that I thought was interesting and, and shows how different groups of people have different biases was, you know, I see people in the U.S., especially from certain political leanings, talk about, well, this is a, a biochemical weapon created in China. And that's people in the U.S. that will say that. 
but I've heard anecdotally there are many people in Iran who is suffering, you know, tremendously. We're talking about this is a biochemical weapon created by the U.S. Right. And it's like different cultures, different societies, but you know, let's back away from the conspiracy thinking and let's focus just, on the science. It's easy to say it's not your fault. Yeah, and it's I think it's scapegoating. It's easy to say it's this guy over here. Yeah. Right. And that's all that is. It's blame now, the devil. And China has even said that it could have originated in the United States. I mean, that's the other right. one. I get. Yeah. The other one I get is the other one I, I see a lot is it's a Chinese virus. It's a Chinese virus, you know, just like HIV was a gay virus, right? And that the was, Spanish flu was a Spanish virus. It was a Spanish virus. And so, and we know for sure that, you know, it wasn't, a, you know, it was just, they didn't, yeah, it was some political thing right. like that. And that likely that the, that it came from, originated in China, and then moved into into Europe and then spread around. But the first confirmed case was in Kansas, of all places. So, <laughs> right, uh, right. So, uh, but it's still foggy on like the origin of uh, 1918. Uh, so uh, the one I get is it's a Chinese virus. And so it is not, uh, so first of all, I don't know if you know this about viruses, but they have no nationality <laughs> and they have no country of origin really at the end of the day. Uh, they may have originated in a particular area, but, you know, they are probably elsewhere. Uh, and they have no loyalty to any religion or any race or creed or whatever. They All they care about is replication. That's it. So um, it is not, it is a, I would say it's a, it is definitely a bat virus <laughs> for sure. It, 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 we know that it originated in bats. And so it's a bat virus. It's not a Chinese virus, it's a bat virus. <laughs> so, yeah, but even then, you know, it's a virus. It replicates, um, you know, just like HIV, you know, it, it, came, it, it came from monkeys. It's a monkey virus, you know, it, they're zoonotic viruses, right? Um, but it's just, it's just this, you know, it's just, it's, you know, 20 years later, it's a new thing, right? With HIV, it was this, with this, it's something else, right? But the idea is it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. You know, and that it, 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 you know, we need to work together, uh, you know, as a team to defeat it. That's, uh, you know, we need to, you know, and then going back to the Game of Thrones analogy, we, the North and the South and all the Riverlands have to combine the force to defeat the Night King, right? We can't just all like fight it individually. We will lose. Right. I, I've never actually seen Game of Thrones. I'm sorry. That's oh, great. Great show. But, great but show. I have heard that it is a fantastic show and yeah. I will eventually watch it. I, yeah. I mean, I'll be rooting for Sean Bean the entire F series. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'll lose my head over that. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen this, people ask this on your page and I've seen this um, while in other, in other public spaces too. And it's people who talk about, they, they profess that they were really sick back in, December, mm. early January. Right. They know that they had SARS, COVID two, and you know an infection with. They had a COVID infection, despite right. having no direct contact with anyone overseas, no travel, and it just it feels to be unlikely that yeah. COVID nineteen was circulating in the United States in late December. Um, but I'm I'm interested in hearing your opinion on that. Yeah. No. So, uh, so we only had the very first cases, the first like first ones that they would they would let us know in like November, late December, a lot of them going back to the Wuhan market, uh, potentially. Um, so, uh, no, <laughs> you did not have it in November. You did not have this in late December. You may have had it maybe late December, but not early December. 
Um, but um, the first confirmed case was in Seattle, uh, next to kind of eight hours from where I'm at. And that was on the 20th. Uh, the first communal case, when someone, they, they didn't get it from, they didn't travel anywhere and they got it somehow other way was in California. And, and that was on February 6th. So going back, even if the first case was on the 20th to maybe New Year's, okay? Uh, maybe if you were sick on New Year's, I, I don't know. But beyond that, these are acute viruses. They don't sit around, they're not latent, they don't hang around in the immune, immune system or the you know, neural system as far as we know. You know, new data will come and this, they'll use this video against me probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, but you know, science is an ever evolving thing and things change. So right. what I would say now may change in six weeks. No, that's fair. Right, um, and so, go ahead. No, I was just gonna follow up with, uh, somebody close to me was asking about like treatments and whatnot. And they were asking like, okay, well, to to them, the sound, the effects of this this uh, this disease is very similar to cystic fibrosis, and I don't know that that's the case or not. Just as far as fluid buildup in the lungs, but do you know if there's any similarities in treatment for like what we do for cystic fibrosis patients versus what we do for patients going I, through this? You know, or is that outside in, the scope in, of your in practice? In stages, I would say that it, you know they're on ventilators and stuff like that. But cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. Uh, right. It's a single point mutation in the human genome that then allows for more mucin fill, uh, building in the lung. And then you get a polymicrobial infection that is biofilm of, of pseudomonas as the main part of the biofilm. And eventually the, it overgrows and they can't breathe, right? And so they use a lot of uh, kind of mucin, mucin suppressors and also immune suppressors and these kind of things. I'm not an expert in cystic fibrosis, uh, but in the end part when they are needing oxygen, yes, that treatment would be the same uh, okay. as in the end parts of COVID. I was because they, they were curious. I was like, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that. So I should probably ask somebody. Um, so I guess now that you've created an online space for what can be a very contentious topic, um, unfortunately, um, do you have any advice for others who are trying to share their expertise and whatever their niche topic is like in a public setting? Uh, I think, you know, if it's, if it's like astrophysics or, mathematics or whatever you're doing, um, I think sharing that information, I think is incredibly important and maintaining the idea of only the peer reviewed or preprints um, and then taking some time to actually say and answer people. Right now, I, 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 we have a lot of people on the page now because they're just worrying about COVID, but I'm hoping that they'll stay and learn about other things. And so I think, um, because eventually this thing will go away. It will change our lives at Repert, really. But I, I think, you know, having more, having scientists think about beyond just the lab, beyond just uh, the computer, beyond just writing papers, beyond just going after grants, but actually going out and doing outreach uh, to your com uh, local communities, going to, going to, you know, grade schools, high schools, these kind of things, uh, giving lectures, I think is really important. And I think people are really interested in science. I think people are really interested in facts. I don't think it's to the point of where people are not interested in facts and these kind of things. I think that that is still there, thankfully. 
Uh, that is not, we're not, you know, 500 years ago, they used to burn scientists at the stake. So we're not there <laughs> anymore. So we've made some progress. Uh, Giordano Bruno uh, was burnt at the stake for yeah, his belief in the heliocentric model, right? So we've, 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 we've got, we've, we're not there yet, thank, thank right. whatever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so we've, we've come a long way. So I think that, you know, share your, if you're a professional scientist, an MD, those kind of things. Uh, be cognizant of what you share because it will go everywhere. But also be a good citizen and try to be able to, you know, you know, and and this goes back to the 80s and 90s, like when we talked about the ozone, right? And scientists said, hey, the ozone's a problem. We got to get rid of CFCs. They used to listen to us. Policymakers used to listen. And now we're, now it's, now uh, they have silenced us. And that is a thing of great concern. Because if a society who doesn't believe its scientists and engineers and mathematicians is a society that doesn't exist very long. So, um, yeah. So I think it's just like, get the right information out there, have groups of people communicating and we can do a lot. And I think we have to, we have to have a grassroots movement to eliminate uh, not only this virus and a community thing to simulate this virus, but to eliminate its, its even more sinister cousin, and that is mis misinformation. So where can listeners um, and viewers, since this will be on YouTube, um, yeah. <laughs> where can uh, people go to experience your work, ask more questions and get more? Right, so uh, we have uh, our public Facebook group, uh, Your Friendly Neighborhood Virologist. You can add that tonight. I'm also going to have a YouTube channel. This, this will also be uploaded to our YouTube channel uh, as well. If you're interested in employment or science in general, uh, we, I have a, a startup company, uh, Raw Molecular Systems, LLC. And it's rawmoleculasystems.com. You can go there. Um, and then, of course, you can Google my name or GitHub page um, uh, in order to contact me directly. So uh, I'm always enthusiastic and a cheerleader for science in general and math and engineering. And uh, if this is interesting to you or anyone and you wanna be involved, I, uh, I'm all ears. And so I'm here to uh, stop. I'm trying, I guess I'm, I'm trying to leave this pale blue dot better than I found it. It's the Girl Scout motto too. And I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, so. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I, I was really happy that you were able to, to come on and, and to share your expertise. And like I said, we've, we've chatted about COVID-19 in the past, but so much has changed and I see our, and in a good way in, a, in that we've learned so much and right. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Oh, well, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.